Welcome to the Artistic Finance Podcast, where we break down the wall between art and money. If you're here looking for how to be an artist and financially sustain a career, you're in the right place. Keep listening and join us as we learn about artists and how they make money work for them. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Ethan Steimel, here for episode 49. Today's guest is dancer Marlon Felice. She's a dancer with Palabolus, is in the current Broadway revival of West Side Story, and is currently streaming performances via Speakeasy On Demand, which, if you want to watch, make sure to use code MARLIN for 10% off. Before we get to the interview, let me say thank you for listening. To the new patrons, welcome, and to all patrons, thank you immensely. If you want to join our patron mafia and access a private podcast feed, get the shows early and the extended interviews, sign up at patreon.com slash artistic finance. Use the code MARLIN for 10% off. Just kidding, the Patreon doesn't work like that. But thank you in advance for becoming a patron, especially if you do so by May 5th. If we can get 50 patrons by May 5th, we will continue to put out new episodes every week. If not, you'll get a new episode every other week, which means that the weeks between you'll be sad and lonely without me. Links to everything we talk about today is in the show notes and on our website, artisticfinance.com. We also have the back catalog of episodes there, along with links to the gift shop and if you want to make a one-time payment to the show. Without further ado, let's get to our interview. Welcome, Marlon Felice, to the podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to dive in. We are recording this on March 20th, 2021. So we are amidst the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm-hmm. We're amidst a Black Lives Matter slow burn across the United States. Mm-hmm. And most recent incident, there was a domestic terrorism incident in Atlanta where somebody shot six Asian women at a spa. That's the background of where we are in this moment. Yes, unfortunately. Marlon, could you just tell us a little bit about you? What do you do? What's your stick in life? And where are you now in your career? Uh, absolutely. So my name is Marlon Felice. I'm originally, I was born in Bingham Republic. I come from a Dominican family. And I grew up in Miami since I was like about a year old. And my real medium of artistic expression is dance it's the body I've just always been a mover it's, it's a sort of story from my parents from when I was a baby how that showed very quickly so I grew up first just dancing with my Jamaican family like I love to say that my dad was my first dance partner and then of course that led into things like some gymnastics training for a couple of years and then I was lucky that Miami had lots of like magnet programs in middle schools and such so I, I got into one of those the, the new world school of the arts which is um, a, a performing arts high school that I then got my like, foundational classic ballet and modern dance training. I also joined the local dance studio, the New Image Dance Center. By that point, I really had decided if that was going to be my career path. And I have always had outside interests. I'm just a communicator. And, but I knew in my heart of hearts, I just had to follow through with dance and exploring that path. And I'm, I have never regretted that choice, not once. I then went on to NYU Tisch and I got my BFA in dance there. And since then, I've had actually a very varied sort of like unpredictable dance career, which looking, I'm sort of in a a place now with the pandemic, like lots of people are reflecting. Um, So sort of still in that space of exploring that question for myself. But I, I danced with a local 
modern dance company, C. Chen and Dancers, and did some sort of like freelance exploration in New York City for that first year out of school. Then I did my first cruise ship with Royal Caribbean, which was like three big production shows. And then the like really big surprising addition to that was aerial work on that ship. So I was paid to learn that skill, which was an amazing way to do it. Um, came back and I was auditioning again and I reconnect. I connected with Palabalus and I then started touring their Shadowland around you know, the world, really internationally. I came back. And they were sort of in a transition period with the company. So I explored musical theater. And then I did my first musical theater tour around the U.S., a non-union tour. Uh, went back to Plavlis doing Shadowland 2 for about two years on and off. Kept auditioning for musicals and exploring that world. And then that brought me ultimately to um, a second cruise ship contract with two major musicals on there. More Broadway connections through that. Holly Ann Palmer and her company, Kaleidoscope Entertainment. And then I worked with Warren Carlyle on a show for that ship called Havana. Another more, more freelancing with Palabalus work. And ultimately that then led me to West Side Story, which was my most recent large big project before the pandemic, which was just a wild ride. And I, I really look forward to seeing where that goes after the pandemic. Um, and now in this pandemic, I've had just some small opportunities, thankfully, did a speakeasy on-demand project, a filmed project with Kaleidoscope Entertainment in the fall that's streaming now, which I'm, I'm sure we can talk about later. And I'm now in a little sort of like COVID dancer pod doing rehearsals again with Palabalus to be able to do some performances outdoors in the spring and summer and such. And hopefully that all can follow through. So that's where I'm at right now. Man, Marlon, that is a lot. Yeah. Whoa. It's kind of trying to keep track of it all. You don't have to answer this question if you don't want, but I am curious. How old are you? Yeah, I actually had a feeling this would come up because it's it feels like a part of my consciousness in a way that it hasn't before. I'm 29 and I will be 30 this summer. And I'm, I'm sure there's people in my family who are going to hear this and be like, why are you outing yourself? You're a dancer. Don't do that. But I've never been ashamed of my age. And I, I'm still quite sprightly, so that's what I it. only bring it up because, and this this now, so I first met you or saw you working on West Side Story, and that show has new choreography that is very physical. Yes. And so when you said you had gymnastics training, I thought, aha, okay. <laughs> and then you talked about the aerial work, and I thought, okay, more really physical stuff. And then you also mentioned Palabalus, which if yeah. anybody doesn't know that, they're a very physically demanding. Very athletic. <laughs> so, One of the dancers here was a like proper gymnast for much longer than me. I, I had, you know, those two years as a kid. So I would say that it's like in my movement DNA to be somewhat daring and to be athletic. But man, I kind of wish I had stuck with it a little longer because I, I don't have all those flips and, and some passes. I don't, I don't have all of those skills, really. But I, I do what I can with some acrobatics and partners. So, and I was only asking the age, really, because you said so many things. You've done so much. Mm -hmm. But then, yes, there also is that very, what you've done has been very physically demanding. Mm -hmm. Okay, so really quickly, your creative personality here. What is a live event that you like to experience as an audience member? You know, I haven't done a lot of this, but I've realized how much I appreciate it during this time. I actually love live music shows, but not in the sort of mega arena situation, though that is, can be fun. I, I'm fantasizing in this time about the sort of smaller venue 
where maybe you're 500 people maximum in sort of like a more loungy or dance hall type area where you have the bars on one side and it's a big open dance floor and there's couches on the side. So there's room to really move and to feel like you're in communion sort of with other people in that special space and get sweaty and it's dark and there's lights everywhere. And like, that's sort of what I'm craving. That really like visceral, the artists are right there. They're sweating in front of me. I'm sweating. You can just like dance and, and drink a bit and have a good time. And that's sort of, I think, a really good vibe for me. Awesome. Awesome. What is a piece of art that you like? Everything I've done, everything I've already done as a, as a performer started with that kind of inspiration. So there's Palabalist rep pieces that will always be imprinted on my heart, even if I never get to do them. Just having witnessed them to me feels like a gift. There are movies that stay with me, particularly, I think, characters, particularly strong female characters, especially if they're another woman of color, because I think I just needed to see, be able to see myself like every other human on the planet. I didn't always, growing up, looking at the media, always be able to see myself. Since no one's seen me on video, I'm like a very curly-haired, brown-skinned Latina woman, Afro-Latina woman. So th th those kinds of characters are important for me, for sure. You're not talking about a female artist. You're talking about in a story, I'll just say Mulan. <laughs> <laughs> I did watch that recently. So like the character of Mulan. Absolutely. I think I'm sort of questioning this in this moment, why I've never had an idol or a particular mentor or people look at like certain artistic figures as like their mentors or their guides. I think because I have such eclectic or varied interests, it was hard for me to find a person that could embody all the things I want to do with my life. But I will be very inspired by different people's work in different arenas, the paths that they've taken. And I sort of take pieces of that or I feel inspired by their sort of authentic ownership of their life and their past story not, not necessarily a linear story but that a sense that kind of theatricality theatricality in a performance a sense of humanity even in dance pieces that are really that are more focused on just movement I, I think I gravitate naturally as a performer and artist to things that feel like they're expressing the human condition and if they're doing it through the body only amazing but also if you're doing it through text and imagery and music and I just want to feel the humanity of it characters have a way of doing that when if you can relate to them here's a question that i wasn't planning to ask you but it's about your financial personality <laughs> are you good or bad with money um i would say at this point i'm pretty decent with it i'm pretty solid i've learned how to live within my means i very actively tried to avoid mistakes that my parents were willing to be honest about in their financial journeys so i haven't had any huge mistakes. I've also been very lucky. I've never had like a huge health crisis that, that took me off path in that way or something. So I'd say I have a good foundation. I'm pretty good at this point at living within my means. And I've begun just in the last year, like before Westside last year to, to start to actually think more long-term about savings. I start open to Roth IRA. In the past decade, I think I was pretty good at just like learning how to live within my means, learning how to get by and recognizing when you need to bring in more income. And I tackled my student loans with a vengeance. So I am very proud that I have knocked those out. I am now, I've been debt free now for about a year. So I'm proud of-, of Congratulations. I'm happy, thank you. Uh, but now it's time to sort of build more long-term. Okay, again, you don't have to answer this if you don't want, um, but you're 29, I'm assuming you left NYU at 22, 23? Uh, 21, just because they're dance 
Their dance program is a three-year program, so I was 21. Got it. Okay, so, and you've been debt-free for a year. So seven years it took you to pay off the loans. How much were the loans at the beginning? Do you know? I need to go back and look at what I fully paid. That's the answer I want to know. Oh, that's but a, that's remember, a, ooh, yeah. <laughs> with interest, like, that's what I want to know. I remember looking at the totals and I had about 27 grand, I think that I owed. And I considered myself lucky because I had based, you know, a lot of NYU is need-based aid and I had all the need in the world when I was auditioning and applying because my parents were divorced and had horrible credit and I got a full tuition scholarship, but I still lived in the dorms for those first two years. So I had to pay back room and board and I had some sort of like extra courses for my minor that I also had to pay. Thankfully, I was an RA in my last year, so that helped. Yeah, even with all that assistance, I still left with a healthy chunk of change of debt. (laughs) But I mean, 27,000, that's, first of all, that's really, you're fortunate that it's only that amount. But also, seven years is that 3,000 a year, 4,000 a year that you were paying off, plus the interest, which we don't actually know, but add X amount for the interest. (laughs) Exactly. Um, but that's really good because you're you're dancing full time freelancing and it took you seven years, but that's really not bad. And you paid it off. So not good work, Marlon. Proud of you. <laughs> Thank you. That was one of those. I, I just discovered, I guess, that's a part of my financial personality is that I did not like the feeling of having that debt and owing anyone anything. And um, I um, will always say this to other my you know dancer folks, but other artists in general is like, please just don't stick your head in the sand. Just please don't just ignore those financial realities. Um, and I just, I literally couldn't do that because it bothered me. I, I think there's a way in which we can use our emotions around money for good. And in that way, I like use that dislike of that feeling to sort of light a fire under me. So whenever I was on a longer term contract, like the first cruise ship, and I knew that I had spare funds because I wasn't paying room and board. I, I'm very lucky that a lot of the work I've done covered room and board because it was touring or ship. Um, I said, okay, well, I'm not, instead of blowing the money that I would spend on rent, I'm going to, I literally would just like send it off. I would be like, I'm not, it's going to come in and it's going to go right to the loan. So I'm, I'm hoping to sort of take that habit with me forward now into just sending things to savings and <laughs> retirement. So. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, okay, so also, so part of the reason why we're talking today is because I actually listened to another podcast called Actors with Issues, and you were one of their guests. And in your conversation, you brought up so many thoughts on money and how artists need to sort of deal with their money. And I thought, oh my gosh, I need to talk to Marlon. So it's not actually because we both worked on West Side Story. It's actually because I heard you on this other podcast. So I just took note of some of the things that you talked about that I would love to also talk with you about or or have you share with us. The first thing I noticed you said was that actors must talk about finances. You have to deal with it because you're a human being who lives in a world where money runs through everything. You have a relationship with money, whether you think about it that way or not. The question is whether you have a healthy relationship with money. So I think that's a really good way to put it. I didn't have the privilege of not thinking about it. Let's put it that way. I have very supportive parents who um, encouraged me to pursue my strengths and my gifts. And my mother is actually an accountant, (laughs) is great at working with numbers and and all that stuff. But that's not where she finds fulfillment necessarily in, in that work. So she was very encouraging and my, of me and my brother. My brother also ended up being an artist. He's a visual artist, a painter and drawer. 
uh, now mirrorless as well. She was just very encouraging of us pursuing those paths because she wanted us to feel that kind of fulfillment and joy in our careers. At the same time, uh, my father was supportive, but he was also, is also just like a, even a little bit more practical. And both my parents have that side, are, are logical in that way. So they were very clear that we would just have to make it work no matter what. There was never an expectation on my part that I could just graduate college, move into an apartment and have my parents pay my rent. That has never once been my reality. So I did have other kinds of support. Like I have an aunt in the city and there have been short periods of time where I lived with her or worked as her assistant in exchange for rent for a bit. But I've also lived as her roommate and paid rent <laughs> with her. I, I have, I'm not denying the privileges I've had in terms of support, but um, nobody was paying my bills for me. So <laughs> it was the biggest question that I dealt with in that first year out of school. I, I, I sort of endearingly call it my broke year because I was literally counting every dollar and at the grocery store, counting every dollar on every price tag to make sure I had enough for my like $50 of groceries that week. That was very humbling because I didn't, I didn't grow up wanting for anything that I really needed, but I did have experience of like, I can't go to Abercrombie and Fitch because my mom's not going to pay $50 for a tank top. We're going to go to JCPenney. I, I had that very much like modest middle class or lower middle class, whatever someone defines it as experience. So thankfully I did not have, you know, expectations of grandeur when it came to how I'd be making money as a performer and dancer, but it was very humbling to leave NYU and beautiful solo RA room in a new dormitory and then realize like the only thing I could afford was this like shabby little room in a three bedroom at, like out in Brooklyn and off a stop I had never heard of my first year out of school. So um, it's there in front of your face, whether you want to see it or not, is the, my long winded answer to that <laughs> question. And I think it just serves us all better to acknowledge it and um, strip the shame out of that topic. I think that's the least harmful thing. I think that is spot on it, that you have a relationship with money, whether you think you do or not. Like it's either good or it's bad, or maybe it's neutral. <laughs> right. <laughs> but ig ig ignore, you can ignore it. You can ignore it and say, oh, I'm an artist. I don't know numbers. I'm not good with it. You can do that. But that's a bad relationship with money. Mm -hmm. And something else you had said in that podcast, it was just a throwaway. But I thought, oh, that is so spot on. It's unhealthy to be a starving artist. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I just, I understand the romanticism around that trope, right? This idea that you're sort of like a special human who can deny themselves all of these practical things like food and rent money to just focus on your art. I just, I can't imagine looking at my parents in the eye who worked so hard to provide the basics for us and being like, no, that doesn't matter. All, all I, I just need to move my body and I can you know, survive on just ramen and macaroni and cheese forever. It would feel like disrespectful somehow for me to say that <laughs> like to, to, to my family. It can be almost elitist in, in a certain way for, for someone who does have a lot of privilege, who's not acknowledging, you know, like have, who has generational wealth or those familial financial support to operate in that way. It's, I'm like, okay, well, you can do that. You literally have those means. But you're, but you're also not starving. Right. You're not actually starving. <laughs> this is one of my problems with Gilmore Girls, if you have ever seen this series. I've never finished seeing it. I've seen a, the, a bit of the first season. Yeah. Well, Lorelai breaks away from her parents that have the wealth, and she goes out on her own, and she does it all. That's very admirable. But she could always go back if she needed. 
yes, it's very noble. But you have a safety net. Yes. <laughs> yes, that is the word I use for it. And then we can talk about what that means in the policy standpoint in terms of safety nets, which is a whole other topic. And I had the safety net of I have two, my parents, that means I have two separate middle-class homes I could always fall back to. And that in itself is my safety net, right? Like I, I'm literally not going to end up on the street because I have multiple homes, family, not even just them. I have cousins and aunts and uncles and primas and this and that. So, I, you know, I have that privilege. Absolutely. But I, do, I don't have family wealth to fall back on. So I just. But, but your kids will. If you ever have kids, I suspect I'm seeing you're going to leave them like generational wealth. It's going to be awesome. It's, it's sort of <laughs> never been my leading goal in getting my financial life in order. But it is becoming something that I would love to, to leave behind for sure. I'm, I'm now just in this stage of trying to set myself up more long term. Because I also know that my parents won't be around forever and they're busy worrying about their own retirement. That's their own concern that they have to deal with. Um, and I would love to be able to help them <laughs> in their older age. And I would love to have a partner and a family one day. And, you know, something about turning 30 soon is, is that becomes really clear that you um, have a limited amount of time for compound interest <laughs> to, <laughs> to, to work its magic. You want to get on that train sooner than later and just get yourself set up. And I, it would just, I think it is a gift to be able to leave uh, family members, current and future, the ability to, you know, have a stable home and, and have health insurance and have education, you know, the basics, like those things really matter. <laughs> Absolutely. When I asked you to talk to me on the podcast, you said, I would love to touch on the idea that artists can consider all the factors that go into a job opportunity, you know, be it artistic and finance and what all that means. And then you also touched on the sort of the quality of life is really what it boils down to. It's not about artistic life or financial life. It's about just quality of life in general. I like to think of all the factors that go into an opportunity, whether it's an artistic job offer or a side gig or a parallel career, whatever it is. All of these things are pieces of your life that make up how you feel in your life day to day, month to month, year to year. All of those pieces are meeting different needs and desires. And everybody's going to have a different sense of prioritization. And that may shift also over your lifetime, right? So it's like, a, I think of it as sort of like puzzle pieces that you're always just trying to get to work together in this big mural of your life. Yes, we absolutely have to think about the how the numbers work out, how the financial pieces fit together. But also, is it offering you a place to live, giving you an opportunity to explore a place that you haven't explored before? Does that interest you? Is that of real value? Um, is it giving you an artistic experience that you haven't had yet before? Like when I had the chance to do aerial work, that was so exciting. What value are you getting out of all these different pieces of the puzzle? And does that feel like a, a healthy way to work and to live and to be in the world? Because some of the trade-offs you might have to make for different opportunities might be doable for you. For example, right now, I'm going to spend the entire spring in Connecticut working with Pueblos in our little pod. For some folks, that is not a trade-off they're willing to make. I was willing to make that trade-off. And there's no wrong or right there. So it's just about acknowledging the pieces of your puzzle have to work for you. And that sounds very abstract, but it really is about the practicalities. Does the money work for you? Does it meet your financial needs? If it's no, can you supplement with something else if you really want to make that opportunity work for you? If you cannot supplement with something else, 
Can you lower your expenses for your period of time to make it work? And then if you really can't make the pieces work, sometimes we have to let things go. Those equations are going to shift at different chapters of your life, right? Like I am wanting in this point in my life to really start to think more long-term about savings and investing. I am going to be paying close attention to income and trying to make that more abundant for myself. At the same time, I still want to be creatively fulfilled. So maybe you get both of those things in the same project, but maybe you don't. Maybe you spend part of the year doing something that's really artistically fulfilling and you're more frugal. And then you do something that's a little bit more financially rewarding to sort of make up for that time. It's really just about a balancing act. I think that's an emotional game we play within our brain of, you know, I'm doing this thing for money. But somehow in my head, I feel like that's shameful and I have to justify and only tell people about the art I'm doing and not really tell them about the part that I'm doing for the financial bed. Well, one, I think that does a real disservice to young artists in training who are looking at this career as a possible path and wondering how they're going to do it for themselves, particularly artists who don't come from a place of socioeconomic privilege. And if you talk to them purely about the art and you do not tell them the reality that, oh, I also have this day job that pays my bills because the art's not paying my bills. If you're not open about that, and you don't have to like go into it, but if you just don't, if you don't just kind of say it somewhat plainly like that, it's deceiving. Even if you're not intentionally trying to lie to them, you're sort of lying by omission because you're giving them this sense of like, you could do exactly what I'm doing and survive financially. You're giving them that impression. And I don't think artists have to reveal all their financial details, not by any means. I just think it does a disservice to, to those who are, who are learning from us and working with us. The emotional, in terms of the emotional game we play about feeling shame about taking on a project um, because it pays well or having to have something else. I think that ties into this sort of larger cultural idea that it's impolite to talk about money, which I find so ironic because at the same time, this culture idolizes wealth and, and, and billionaires and such. So I, I'm like, who, who does it really serve to operate in that way? <laughs> who's, who, who does it serve? Uh, I, I just think it's shady. And I think it just makes our lives so much harder. Feeling bad about needing money and needing to take money from a certain project to something something else. or, or I just think it makes our lives needlessly harder. It, I felt that for myself, that it would, it would make my day-to-day harder to try and think of it that way. And actually, I, I want to go way back to you paying off your student loans. I said you were freelancing as a dancer and you paid them off. And that's true. But you also worked retail. Yeah, I did other things. And I'll sort of like put my money where my mouth is. I will openly share those things now for anyone who's listening because I want them to understand that there were, I've been very blessed to have periods of time where I was exclusively working as a dancer performer and that was paying my bills full time. There have also been months of time, entire half years for the most part, where I was auditioning and I treated that as my day job and I was working the night shift doing other things. So my first year out of school, I worked a part-time retail job. This was a humble pill too. I worked coat rack at Webster Hall the dance hall that was two blocks away from the NYU dormitory I had left the year before as an RA. That was my first big humble pill when I I just needed something quick to supplement. Um, I then later on, after some dance contracts, sort of revisited some experience I had as a hostess in restaurants. So then I tried to move that into waitressing a bit. And then for the last few years, the supplemental income primarily that I had between dance contracts uh, was as a cater waiter. I did that on and off between Palabalist work, between musical theater work. 
I did that on and off for at least like four years. Yeah. And I remember having moments where I would tell my mom, like, I, you know, I would talk to an NYU friend who was in a more traditional career path, people who were very close friends of mine. And to see the gap in their financial progress versus mine or their income versus mine and my instability was a bit hard for me to swallow, not because I, they didn't deserve it, not in any means, but because I had always seen us as equal, but because our financial situation had become so different simply because I worked in, you know, this sort of episodic, unstable artistic career. Um, and I remember being like, wow, mom, sometimes I just like don't want to put on this cater winner uniform or I feel bad. It makes me feel bad. And I'm so grateful for my parents not having any speck of elitism in them, even though they were, you know, college educated and support us going to college. She just has told me many times, she was like, don't you ever feel shame for doing honest work to pay your bills. You're doing what you need to do to support yourself. That's it. That's all it is. That's all it needs to be. Don't ever let somebody shame you. Don't shame yourself. So I'm very grateful that I have the, I think, meaningful part of what it means to be practical. Like knowing that you just got to do what you got to do to take care of yourself. That doesn't mean you have to go against your value. I never did anything. Or, you know, if I was exploring an opportunity that, that then made me feel like I was going against my values, I did not pursue those avenues. So I'm not going to encourage anyone ever to do something that truly feels like they're going against their integrity. No, you, you absolutely have to honor your integrity. There's a difference between honoring your integrity and like protecting your ego. you know I've had my moments of having to take that humble pill and say listen right now I'm tired and I don't want to go to this extra catering gig but I need that extra $200 to make my rent this month and it is what it is I just do whatever helps me keep going if it helps you keep going if it helps you to take care of yourself and your needs and it helps you to take care of your family if you're supporting family it's all right as long as it just you know is in line with your values I I absolutely love this no shame because it's intellectually we all know that there is no shame for an honest job. We all know that. And yet, and it's yet. still this big <laughs> bugaboo. Right. <laughs> but something I notice in the way you talk, and this is something that my wife and I have talked about, where we grew up, people use the word consequence. You do this, there are consequences to that action. And you use a different word called trade-off. There's trade-offs because consequence has a guilt feel associated that we don't want. Right, it has a very <laughs> negative uh, connotation to it, absolutely. Trade-off is one of my trigger words of that's good because that's like a neutral term. It removes the sort of you're doing it right or you're doing it wrong. If it were as simple as go do this and you'll become a famous actor and have lots of money, everybody would do it. That doesn't exist. It's not possible. Right. You know your life and your health and so you'll know what is healthy for you and what's not healthy for you, mm-hmm. but it's not this, you know, there's there's like a predestined plan of you're doing something wrong or right. No, that's, <laughs> that's why, also, I think that's also why it's so hard for artists because there is no set path. Uh, as a doctor going to med school and going to residency and, you know, picking your specific medium within that field, we don't have the same kind of set path. It's a meandering cyclical path and you have to constantly sort of keep the ball rolling there's two parts to sort of like making it work for you in a healthy way which is one don't put your head in the sand look at things clearly honestly openly look at your financial accounts look at your statements do it bit by bit I'm, I'm really grateful for the actress fund they're all they're doing a lot of that work and it's all three workshops highly recommended to everybody that I only recently reconnected with because I really started my financial journey uh, independently 
just start there. Just start at looking with things bit by bit, honestly and openly. Try and sit with the feelings that come up and just make note of them. And, and if something sort of feels really heavy, then maybe we can just start to ask ourselves why. Why does this feel heavy? What, what, what is it bringing up for me? Why, why does it feel? Is there, is there a, a, a track playing in my head about the way things should be or shouldn't be that I got maybe from somebody else, maybe somebody in my family, maybe a school teacher, maybe a mentor? Is, maybe their words are reverberating in my head about this and I need to analyze, reanalyze those things. And then I think it's, there's the other side of just like, we need to take care of ourselves as human beings. And that means taking care of yourself emotionally, mentally, and physically. And money is just a huge part of how we do that. To feed yourself, to clothe yourself, to house yourself, to get medical care, all those things. It seems so silly to me to shame people for having basic human needs and for needing to make choices to meet them. Like, <laughs> I, I just don't, it's not helpful. I certainly could not be my creative, right? What I call like sparkly Marlin self when I was really concerned about making rent. When I am so concerned about those things, I get tunnel vision because I'm like, well, I have to just make, I have to figure this out. It's hard for me to be creative. I've learned that. Other people have way higher tolerance for knowing where their paycheck is coming. Like people have their own kinds of tolerance in terms of like financial insecurity and stuff. I certainly can take a certain amount of uncertainty, but um, I do not want to stress about my rent every single month. I, I, I could not live that way. I learned that very quickly right out of school. I said, okay, you need a little bit more of a runway, Marlon. Like you need to be able to at least see a few months ahead that you're going to be okay and to be able to make some plans. And I'm okay then with every year things shifting. I can handle that amount of uncertainty, but I, I do not, cannot month to month constantly be worrying about that. Um, and that's just, my own emotional for my own emotional well-being I honor that and that influences my choices and everybody has to sort of be honest with themselves uh, about their financial personality in that way I like the way you put it and you just a little bit ago said you started your financial journey independently I want to say that everybody listening and everybody starts their financial journey independently there, there's not really people in the world. I mean, I think there are at the 1% level, and those are fake people. Those, aren't, those don't count as real people. <laughs> probably, they're probably not listening to this podcast. Let's put it up. They are not <laughs> listening to this podcast. <laughs> but everybody is independently because nobody's parents teach them this. They might teach them something that worked for their life. They might set them up with a, even a trust fund or something, but they can't actually teach you, teach you. Like you have to learn it yourself. All artists, all your peers, they're all in this same boat. They have to learn financial independence, financial wellness on their own. I mean, we can certainly talk about it. And I and you both of us clearly encourage that. Right. Cole, because how else are you going to learn if you don't know what other people are doing or what they've done that maybe you can do or maybe what they're doing that you shouldn't be doing. Right. But you have to take the initiative and the action because People don't talk about this and nobody teaches you. So even your mother, you said, is an accountant. And that definitely helped you, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. But did she really teach you numbers and teach you budgeting and, <laughs> and say, this is what you're going to have to do if you want to survive as a freelancer? Yeah. No way she did that, even though she's good with numbers. Well, parents, one can only teach you what they themselves know. Some, I've certainly heard of people be, being taught budgeting or having parents open savings accounts for them early or teach them how credit works and such. So there are people who I do think get that head start. Um, but nobody can do your financial life for you. 
is I think sort of what you're getting at there. Like some, certainly somebody can help you get set up. They can help you do your taxes. They can open savings accounts for you. Some parents do that for their kids or grandparents do it or they, you know, whatever it is, but your life is your life. So you ultimately, I mean, this is the part that I guess is a hard pill to swallow initially. It's you have to take real ownership and responsibility for that part of your life because it's entirely yours. <laughs> and you, no one will be as affected by your personal finances as you will be because they're yours. <laughs> so just, just like own that shit. <laughs> it's yours. It's yours to own. And I think if we approach it that way, it can begin, it can start to shift from being this sort of like burden of this thing that I have to deal with that I don't want to deal with to this empowering part of your life that you're taking ownership of. Right. Um, and that starts with just, just being acknowledging it and then um, starting to look at it. Honestly, that's the only way to begin. Oh, I love this honesty theme. There was also something you said, which was it makes you a healthy artist to have connections outside of the arts. And I think that's a really good thing to be aware of. Like it's all about your social circles and how you can connect those. Like it's okay to want to work on Broadway and only be in the Broadway circle, but there's nobody that's there and only there. Everybody there is in many other places. And if you want to get into that circle, chances are you're going to have to do it a roundabout way. Although maybe it's a little different with actors because you can just audition and then get into Broadway. So maybe there's a bad example. Right. Well, it's, it's not always quite that simple, but yes, that, that is a path. I think it makes you a well-rounded human being to have relationships with people in all kinds of work lives, but also just with different kinds of life experience. And, you know, if you're lucky, you meet people from different parts of the country or different parts of the world, and that also expands your worldview. I just think it makes you a more well-rounded human being. It seems sort of just obvious to me that if you're a more well-rounded human being, you have more to bring to the table artistically because you have more to draw from. That doesn't mean I'm not trying to discount the level of uh, sort of specificity and specialization that comes with being really committed to a particular line of work or a particular community. I also think there's huge value in that. I, I guess I'm sort of saying like, let's be careful about having too much tunnel vision. Let's make sure we open the blinders regularly to sort of look around and see what's sort of being created and cultivated in other areas. Because I think we have the, this, creative opportunity there and and this is maybe a little dramatic to say but it's also simply a reality that a lot of artists don't spend their entire lives working primarily in the arts people shift in and out of artistic careers all the time I sense that it's just a bit a bit easier to do that to make those kinds of transitions in and out or to shift within your artistic medium within the artistic world if you have a sort of broader community of people that you're connected to people will call that a network I find that word I mean yes it's a network I find that word a little bit clinical somehow <laughs> like um, network you're a little formal somehow yeah I just think that like re relationships are the spice of life there, there's no need to limit yourself to connections with human beings who are trying to do just the exact same thing as you um, why it's so interesting we have such a diverse world of people uh, like let's learn from one another See, that's one of these things that talking about finance, it's like you find out that Marlon treats money the exact same way I treat money. That means all the other actors and all the other dancers are doing it the same way. Like we all have to file taxes 
the exact same way that everyone else has to file taxes. But yeah, we're all diverse. And yet money to me is not complicated. This is perhaps a more of a political point of view or policy thing. I think our as a society, the U.S., from an educational standpoint, can do much better to prepare its young people for the reality of the financial world. I mean, I think there used to be home economics in every high school. That's no longer true. So I think that that should certainly change. And then I think the financial services industry has an entirely different language, does not present itself as being very inclusive to all people. I, I don't blame people for thinking that money and finances are super complicated because we've sort of created those conditions for a lot of folks. And it becomes inaccessible for a lot of people to educate themselves in that way. But it doesn't have to be overly complicated. The basics are pretty clear. You know, you have to have an income. Keep your expenses lower than your income as much as possible. Save money for rainy days because you're guaranteed to have rainy days. Because we sort of act as if like, oh, this is just sort of a maybe. And then you become an adult and you realize unexpected things come up all the time. So it's not a question of when I might need a little cushion. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. It's only really complicated once you're getting to really advanced level, I think, financial products and services. And I fully, to be frank, don't fully understand all of those systems yet. I'm still learning myself about the intricacies of investing, the different ways to do that. But the basics, the foundation is, does not need to be overly complicated at all. To, to counter my own point where I say it's not complicated, we're all making it complicated, but it's not. To counter that point, I do have a question I ask on the podcast, which is, what is your retirement plan? And then I have these follow-up questions. IRA, Roth or traditional, 401k, Roth or traditional, pension, annuity, life insurance, health savings account, college savings plan, social security. So that question is just, what is your retirement? <laughs> All the things. <laughs> so, okay, yes, there is complications. I'm sure some people get heart palpitations when you ask that question, because I think a lot of artists are like, I can't even think about next year, let alone retirement. I just started that process. Um, I think right when I knew that I was approaching the end of my student loans, I finally had the bandwidth to think about long-term savings. Um, I, I, I do kind of wish looking back that I had tried to do those things at the same time, but hey, I sort of learned that later. Um, yeah, my current retirement plan I has just begun. My equity contract with Westside was the first time I had the opportunity to get a 401k. I did immediately take that opportunity with Westside and I immediately with every paycheck started using it to contribute. Right before that happened, I opened my own Roth IRA with uh, the LVEST platform. It's the robo-advisor in particular. They're specifically, their mission is to get more money into the hands of women plus all female identified folks, you know, even that playing field, which is a whole uh, huge mission. And um, I'm now currently looking into what other options are for long-term savings and investing. But those are just my two simple vehicles that I've literally only in the past like two years begun. And now I'm really excited to just like see those things grow. That's awesome. Okay, so I'm going to begin to wrap this up. One thing that you touched on a little bit, I just wonder if you have anything more to add, but it was talking about self-care. Self-care, yes, there's definitely a financial aspect to that. What are you doing for yourself for self-care and or do you want to stress the importance and like how do we do that as artists and freelancers? Absolutely. I mean, it, it became, I think for a lot of people, a, a priority in the pandemic, but that was already kind of revealing itself for me already. Like I mentioned when I was sort of really exhausted and kind of burning out the summer before Westside and needed to take time off. It's taking care of yourself good care of yourself, ideally, the way you would hope that your parents and the people you love and your pets and such were, are hopefully taken care of. 
money is obviously a part of how you do that. Taking care of my money is taking care of myself. It's not the only way to take care of myself, but it is a part of it. I think just like making room in your life, I think for processing for me is I, I didn't realize until more recently how much I needed to build in a little bit more space in my day to day to just process the day. Like I, I, maybe not all performers feel this way, but I'm pretty sure we're all kind of emotional people. I don't see how you could become a performer without having that. I, at least for me, I'll speak for myself only that I, I, certainly feel things in a in a deep way and things that really trigger something in my mind will stay with me they will they will stay on my mind for a long time so I need to dedicate time in my day or my weekends or whatever to just sort of process emotionally and mentally and I'm getting I think much better at doing that now it's a habit I hope to take when things really start to gear up and you were sort of in go-go mode again take with me is to just build that space into your life. And it doesn't have to be a lot, maybe just like 30 minutes, the end of every day where you can just be with yourself to check in. How am I truly feeling? What happened today? How is that sitting with me? Um, that, you know, that leads into sort of mindfulness practice. I am a trained yoga teacher, even though I haven't been teaching. So I do have a yoga practice and yoga philosophy to fall back on. I'm currently in an online Buddhist studies course to, to understand more of the Buddhist perspective. And um, I've started therapy this past year. So there's lots of different avenues for people to check in with themselves and to make sure that they're taking care of their sort of deeper needs that are harder, that are easy to sort of pass over because the day-to-day -day logistics tend to take up a lot of bandwidth in our mind, right? So I, I will just say to anybody like, Set a little bit of space and time in your day-to-day, -day, or at the very least at the end of each week, to truly check in with yourself. Whether that means like you feel like you need to check in on where your finances are at that moment, or you need to check in really on like you're feeling pretty emotional, if, if your brain is feeling foggy, if your body's not feeling good, whatever it is, just make time to check in to address those needs. I think it's just like a, a fundamental human right for us to be able to, to have the major, the, our basic needs met. You know, I, I, that's just sort of my humanistic point of view. So before you can really do that for other people, yeah, you have to do it for yourself. I think that's the best way I've ever heard it described. Look at your pet. <laughs> you look at them and you think this is what they need for a healthy life. Okay, I will provide that for them. So if you can remove yourself from your body and look at you and say, what does Marlon need to live a healthy life? okay, we have to provide that for her. I think that's a great way of figuring out like what you need to be healthy. Absolutely. I think sometimes you need a little distance that way and maybe journaling or meditation, all kinds of things can help people sort of have that bit of perspective. So whatever way works for you. <laughs> Last question before we wrap up, which is, so during the pandemic, you've been doing something called Speakeasy on Demand. What is that and how did that work during pandemic? We're, we're sort of in the big spring push to share that show online. So it is an online streaming show where you pay for tickets and you get access to the show for a week. And you can log in anytime in that week to watch the show. There's multiple packages for ticket prices because the way ideally the show is built, it's sort of a, like a variety type show there's burlesque artists there's circus artists there's the host of the show and her sort of um 
additional supporting characters, which is what I was, the sort of madams of, of the show. We're in, in the musical theater vein. Um, who are just sort of inviting you to come in and watch these different artists, and we're sort of the through line throughout. But I do, the show is also partnered with Bar Lab and Absolute Vodka, so that you can drink ten specially crafted or five different special crafted cocktails while you're watching the show. Then you will get your package delivered to your home, and it has the five different cocktails. They're sort of already pre-mixed. You know, I think there's even little like uh, there's like little lemon wedges and all that kind of like dried fruit. All of that is included. You could even buy a separate package with uh, I think there's barware if you want to buy some of the specialty barware, too. But you would get that delivered so that it would arrive at your home for the week of your viewing. And at your leisure, you decide during that week when you want to pull out your kit and you want to start making the cocktails while you're watching. So that we have we have a bartender even included in the show who shows you how to make each cocktail. You get two servings of each cocktail recipe, so you get 10 cocktail servings total. It's a great date night. Honestly, I think it was just, it's just like a super fun project. Uh, our director, Holly Ann, um, I worked with her on my last cruise ship contract on her show, Prohibition, the musical, which has a bit of a similar vibe, like Pro- Prohibition era type inspiration. She created, this is really her baby, her project. We did it. COVID safe with testing and all that such. We had some light rehearsal for, for my piece of the puzzle. And we were only in LA for about four days and sort of like a hotel pod and such. Um, so that it happened very quickly for me, but I'm lucky that I get to see it be ongoing online. And um, yeah, that's that's something that people can use to brighten their weekend right now. Get those tickets while, you, while you still can. <laughs> Money-wise, you were hired as a performer, right? Mm-hmm. Were you paid one time or do you get a cut if 100 people went and bought it in one day, would you get a little cut of that? Or have you been paid for and you're like, I've washed my hands of it? We were paid sort of a lump sum contract for the actual work of rehearsing and doing the filming. And then there was, I have to look at what the language is exactly, but I think it's like monthly uh, that I'm getting right now or quarterly. Came in also for, for the continuous streaming of the show online, as long as it continues to do that. I, it's sort of, I guess, a little bit like, uh, what do they call them? The R word. Oh, I should, I know this word and now it's escaping me. Oh, royalty. Yeah. <laughs> kind of like residuals. Yeah. It's kind of like that, but not exactly because he's, you know, an independent producer. Uh, I also have a special code under my name for anybody who wants the discount. What is your code? And it is just my name, Marlon, but you got to spell it correctly. <laughs> it's M-A-R-L-O-N. That will get you 10% discount. So uh, highly recommend it, use it. <laughs> and that does, uh, full transparency, it does, I think, help give me like a little bit of a tiny kickback for that. But I, I mostly just want more people to be able to see it and experience the fun of it. Uh, it. It has really a little bit of something for everybody. It was a bright spot in my pandemic year and, you know, the, the year that never ends. So I hope more people can just have some some joy in their life from watching um, some entertainment from home that was truly crafted just to make you laugh, to make you have a good time and forget your worries for a bit and and enjoy this sort of spice of life for for a couple hours. (laughs) If I go watch it, which I've seen photos of it, it looks really entertaining. But if I do, I will use code Marlon, M-A-R-L-O-N. That's right. <laughs> like just like Marlon Brando. <laughs> yeah, perfect. But Marlon Felice, who's way better than Marlon Brando. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, well, that'll be, I'm working on my website right now. So that'll be live on the interwebs this year at MarlonFelice.com. Um, but yeah, they can go to speakeasyondemand.com. 
you can also just stream the show if you if you don't want to have the cocktails you can, that's the most affordable option that's valid too so just check it out if you're interested. fantastic well at least 13 people listen to this podcast so <laughs> maybe 13 people will go <laughs> cool so uh okay so just a couple more questions for you what financial advice would you give yourself back when you started your career or would you give a dancer that is starting out right now it's a sort of a two-piece thing you have to pay attention to it number one please do not establish the pattern of sticking your head in the sand and start saving whatever you can right away is the other piece of advice it's like super boring every financial advisor or like piece of financial personal finance content starts with that but it really is the foundation Try to keep your expenses lower than your income as much as you can so that you have that money to put aside. And I love the way that people describe it as paying yourself first. If that's the first bill you pay that you take out, you know, I don't know, whatever it is, $25 out of your paycheck and you put it in your little savings account just for yourself. If you, if you start that habit early, it just becomes second nature. And then you very quickly can see how that money grows. And that's going to give you the emotional hit of positivity to keep that ball rolling. So it doesn't matter if you're like 15 years old right now and you're training and like the only job you have is like you're working at the local ice cream parlor or something. Do that as much as you possibly can. I understand that sometimes you have to spend all the money you make to survive. But if you can, even if it's just like $5, just get that habit going and then you can build on that over time. Marlon, what can you and I do to stress the importance of finance and savings to our fellow artists. Certainly do having conversations like this that we make very accessible to folks online. I, I, I imagine that there's plenty of folks out there who have a hard time reaching this topic like face-to-face -face with anyone. So this is a great way to sort of, uh, it's the same way that people can maybe take Zoom fitness classes and feel more comfortable because they don't have to be on camera. They can just, you know, be a black so I think doing things like this, for sure, like out in the open and in the media world, having more voices that are acknowledging this reality. And then, but I, I do feel like I'm sort of wanting to go further with that. I certainly have conversations here and there with some of my closer dancer friends about how they're managing, you know, to move apartments or what they're, you know, hey, if you don't mind, like, what's your rent in this new place like? Like, how are you managing that? Um I, I do sort of want to go deeper. I'm, I'm sort of wondering, like, how can I check in on my friends and be like, hey, like, have, are, have you started saving? Like, I'm, I think the way I'm approaching it is I just try and find opportunities to share what I'm doing and say, hey, listen, I've connected with this platform, Elvis. I love their free content. I've learned so much. I feel like you would really enjoy it. Or, you know, just I try to share resources in that way. Um, because I feel that everybody deserves to have that information. And if I want other people to talk about it openly and without shame, I have to start. I have to be the example. So, you know, if, if a friend doesn't bring it up, you know, maybe I'm the one who brings it up. Maybe I'm, I'm the one who really starts that conversation. And my closest friends, I've never had a problem going in that direction with them. Um, of course, with people you're not as close to that, um, you have to be delicate <laughs> about how you enter those conversations with someone you're not super close to. I think sharing resources is a great way to do it. <laughs> I would say you don't have to be delicate, as I am not. <laughs> <laughs> or I guess not but, delicate, but like 
tactful, maybe. They will stop talking to you <laughs> if, if they're not responding well. Yeah. Yeah, maybe like have some tact about how you bring up the subject without necessarily like we you know, we don't have to couch it in metaphors and such. We just be thoughtful. Be thoughtful about how you bring it up with someone that you're not super close to. Final question. Where can people find out more about you? This year, I've already started working on it. They'll, I will be able to be contacted via my website. It will be just marlinfelice.com. Um, as of right now, I am on LinkedIn as Marlon Felice. You can definitely find me on Instagram. Really easy. Marlon the Femme is my handle. That's Marlon the F-E-M-M-E. Like, Femme Fatal was basically my inspiration for that. I'm not a daily social media user. That's one of those things that for my emotional, mental balance, it's just a lot of noise. So I'm not on there every day. Pretty much at least check in weekly. And I do I do ultimately always end up posting about the things that I'm up to like this weekend. I'll be I'll be posting about um what what Pilatus is trying to do right now with our, our small little cohort of dancers. Yeah. So those are those are the main ways. <laughs> awesome. Um, okay, Marlon, thank you so much for joining us and sharing all these thoughts and all this good stuff. Thank you so much. Thank you. I mean, I really hope it's uh, useful to other folks. I feel like, you know, we got into, I guess, the more like emotional mindset side of, of this topic. But I, I think it's honestly like the biggest barrier for a lot of creative types, just, just starting at that place. So I, I hope it's useful to anyone and they can always reach out if they want to ask me more. <laughs> That was our interview with Marlon Felice. My takeaways were take ownership of your finances and the shame around money needs to go away. And you can only do that by facing the music. Listening to this podcast is a way to do it privately, but eventually you need to be able to discuss it, at least to some extent, with your social circle. And finally, take care of yourself. The way people love their pets is how you need to love yourself. Depriving yourself of a healthy life is not okay. To hear more from our discussion, become a patron. Up until May 5th, you can sign up for $3 a month. You have one more month before that level goes away and becomes $5 a month. So join now by visiting patreon.com artisticfinance. As always, if you aren't ready to support the show in that way, but you want to hear the extended interview, you can always email me at artisticfinancepodcast.gmail.com and I will share the audio with you directly. One more request before we wrap up for the week. If you've been listening for a while, you'll remember we've had episodes in Russian, Portuguese, and Spanish. Those are our Connecting culture series, and I love doing them. But they are a lot of work, so you can help me a little bit. If you know a bilingual artist that would love to talk about finances and do it in a language other than English, email me at artisticfinancepodcast at gmail.com. Those episodes remind us that art and finance transcends language. Now, if you have any more goodwill still left to give, please tell one friend about this podcast. If that artist is financially successful, bully for them. If they are in the thick of things and are financially sustaining an artistic career, even better. They are the artist we love. You can find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook at Artistic Finance. Thank you again to my Patreon patrons. You know who you are. That's it for today. Until next time, break a leg.
Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance. Find more information on our website, artisticfinance.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and please leave a rating and review. Artistic Finance is produced in New York City by Nicole and Ethan Steinle. Producing consultant Anne Nygren-Doherty. Graphics and website by Josh Cutler. Music by Chong Liu. Music by Chong Liu.